Welcome to the Bethel Church Podcast. Each week you'll be able to check in for our messages from Sunday and other material. We hope that our messages encourage you in your walk in daily faith with Jesus. Make sure to check out our website, BethelStratford.org. If we haven't had the chance to meet, uh, my name is Carlo. I'm an assistant pastor here and uh, help oversee our youth ministry and some other stuff like that. And uh, if you're brand new here, I just want to just give you a big welcome. Can we just give it a hand for all of our new people? I'm not going to point you out or make you stand up or do a fun dance or come up on stage or something, but um, week after week after week, we have more and more people coming to join the Bethel family and, and check out what this church is all about. And I just think that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, currently we're in a summer series uh, called the Minor Prophets Summer Series. Can you say Minor Prophets? Yes, yes, Minor Prophets. And uh, these uh, are not minor in any way, okay? These, even though the text might be shorter and they might be uh, smaller books in length, there's nothing minor about these Minor Prophet books. In fact, um, even though they're short, uh, the, the concept and the context of the books are quite intense, they're quite heavy. If you've been reading along with us in our uh, summer devotion series each day, we're reading a chapter of one of the mi- minor prophets. Uh, you'll notice that it's not always like the most encouraging book in the sense of like, hey, like God loves, it's, it's, it's usually like God sends a prophet to Israel or Judah or the surrounding areas and basically tells them like, hey, you broke the covenant and uh, now you're going to pay for it. That's when they say it time and time and again. And usually in the summer, it's like, hey, you know, it's like how many barbecues are we doing this summer? Like at least every other day. And it's a beautiful thing, right? And uh, you read through the minor prophet books and you're like, oh, man, this is, uh, this is a little bit hard to uh, read. This is a little hard to swallow. And uh, that's okay. That's okay. So in all of the heaviness of today's subject, um, I, I truly believe that God does want to spark in you a new hope, a new understanding of what these books are uh, for and, and, and the, the context we're going to talk about in a minute of who they were written to. And if I were to give a title to the message today, I wanted to call it this, let there be a flood of justice. Can you say justice? Justice. Oh, we got good participation this morning, missed the table. That's okay. Well, if you've spent any time reading the Bible, you've probably sat there and read it and were confused at one point. Anybody willing to be honest this morning? You're like, I don't get it. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. I'm in there too. And one of, one of the things that I've gathered in my short time in pastoral ministry so far, why people tend to feel confused about the Bible usually uh, ends up coming to this. I don't understand the context, the stories, the people. It just feels so disconnected to where we're at now. And there actually is a little bit of truth to that because this was a long, long time ago. And our world is not necessarily run in the same way as it used to be. So it's understandable that the Bible can be confusing sometimes due to the nature, the time, and even the literature. But I believe that God actually wants to speak to us today through his word. I believe that God is relevant in current affairs and personal matters, but I'm going to give you a challenging thought right off the top. And you're like, is that, is that Pastor Carlo a heretic? No, I promise I'm not. But I want to give you a challenging thought. The Bible wasn't written about you. It was written for you. Not one place in the Bible does it mention my name. 
And maybe, like, your parents named you after, like, I don't know, John the Baptist or something. You're like, well, I'm in there. Yeah, John right there, right? But the Bible wasn't necessarily written for you, but it was, sorry, it wasn't written about you, but it was written for you. Now, just to clarify that, um, there are many principles that are still about us as God's creation. But personally, there isn't a book that was, you know, written about my life. That would probably be pretty boring. And uh, I don't think it would cut, it would make the cut when, when they were making the canon. So just, just think about that as, as you're reading the scriptures, as you're reading the Bible, know that God wants to speak to you and he wants to speak through his word right to your heart. But maybe to help with the confusing language sometimes and the stories and, and, and just the relevancy of it feeling so disconnected from where we're at now, next time you sit down and read the Bible, just go, God, I know you want to speak to me and I want to understand your word in its context first, maybe before I try and put myself in the story. There's nothing wrong with that. I would actually encourage you to do that. But today, before we even jump into what I believe that God wants to share with us through this minor prophet book that we're going to get to in a moment, I want to look at a little bit of context, okay? So first, we're going to look at the word prophet and kind of unpack this a little bit, okay? So say the word prophet with me. Ready? One, two, three. Prophet, okay. Um, this, uh, this idea of prophet or, or a prophetic word um, is something that isn't unusual to us here at Bethel Church as we hear prophetic words time and time and again. But the prophets, okay, is a collection of books that's found in the Old Testament, and they're categorized into two sections. You got the major and the minor prophets. And the, the major prophets are the first three longer main books, and that's Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Okay, so those are kind of the major prophets. And then you have 12 more prophetic works, which are the ones we're working through this summer. They are Hosea, Joel, Amos, which is what we're talking about today, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So these 12 minor prophet books are, it's really interesting, when they were putting together the Old Testament, all of these were on one scroll. Interesting. So even though they're 12 separate works of literature, they're really all talking about the same thing. And you're going to notice consistent themes from week to week to week. So even though they're 12 separate books, Throw one thing. It made me think of uh, Indiana Jones. Anybody like Indiana Jones? Yeah, I love Indiana Jones. This is my favorite movie growing up, watching with my dad. And I remember there was like the three main ones. I think there's a fourth newer one now, but it's not the same because it has to do with like UFOs or something. So it's, it's not really Indiana Jones. But then there was 12 other Indiana Jones movies, kind of spinoffs of when he was a teenager. And they're all different, but it's still Indiana Jones. So that's, that's kind of the point of what I'm trying to make here of the different kind of prophetic works. And you'll notice this idea of prophet is the main theme that's categorized in all of these writings. But I think uh, the idea of prophet is maybe a, a bit of an old term language that we don't consistently use in our everyday life other than maybe within our church context or Christian faith. And I remember as a kid growing up, I was, when I first started hearing this idea of prophet, the first thing that came to my head is like fortune teller. Like the, the, the kind of like odd house that had like a big palm on the window that was like, hey, pay five bucks, I'll tell you your future. Like that's, that's what I thought of. Pro Anybody else with me? I'm the only one. Yeah, okay. I might be the only one. Everybody else, you know, knows what a prophet was. But um, I remember in that moment hearing prophet for the first time and, and having a bit of a disconnect. I thought prophet, fortune teller, or somebody that talks about future events. So what does prophet really mean in the biblical language? 
Well, it's kind of like future events, um, but it's not just that. So here's a really great definition from a guy named Tim Mackey of the Bible Project. He says this, prophets were Israelites that had a radical encounter with God's presence and then were commissioned to go speak on God's behalf like representatives of God. Representatives of God, speaking on God's behalf. Prophets, and we're talking about Old Testament prophets here, okay? Prophets cared so much about the mutual partnership between God and the Israelites, which was known as this agreement and this friendship called a covenant. And the covenant made between God and his people uh, was made so that the people, his people, the Israelites, would express and share his greatness and love to all the nations. So all the nations could be involved in the family. But it required this trust in only Yahweh, only the one true God. But as you read through the Old Testament, you're going to notice that there's all these other gods and idol worship and stuff that is happening. Well, the Minor Prophets books emphasize this breaking of the covenant, usually in three ways. You're going to notice this throughout each book, and it might be a little bit different, but usually it's in these three ways. First, there's an accusation. So in the writings, the minor prophet would have an accusation, which means they were talking about the evil. They were bringing the bad to light of what was happening within God's people in the surrounding areas. So usually the book has something to do with an accusation. Then there's some kind of repentance. So they were called to change their ways. And then many times in the minor prophet books, there was something called the day of the Lord, which is a whole other message we could talk about, but basically talking about the consequences that are to come for ignoring and breaking God's covenant. If I could sum up the idea of what the minor prophet books were about, it would be this. They are a twin message of a prophetic warning and a hope. They are a twin message that God will judge and hold accountable what he needs to, but he will also restore and rebuild. Many times throughout the Minor Prophet books, you'll notice that it's pretty like intense, really heavy, these accusations, this call to repentance, this idea about the day of the Lord, which is not the end of the world. That's not what that means. Um, And at the very end, usually the last chapter, only a couple sentences, maybe even just a few words, there's like this spark of hope. It's really, really interesting. And if you've been following along with us so far in the journey, you would, you would be, if you were taking notes or anything, you would, you would notice this kind of theme that's happening time and time again. So that gives you a little background of profit, okay? I want to give you some context on the book specifically we're talking from this morning, Amos. And uh, we're going to take a few minutes, and I'm just going to give you the spark notes. And uh, normally I use a resource called The Bible Project. Has anybody heard of The Bible Project? It's a great, great resource. It's, uh, they have um, all social media accounts. They got a podcast. They're on YouTube. So if you don't like reading, you can watch. And if you don't like watching, you can read or anything else in between. And we've been actually sharing these things online through our Facebook group and through emails of video breakdowns of the books. And so I'm going to kind of use that video for this next few moments and just explain to you what the book of Amos is all about. It's all free, by the way, which is pretty sweet. So Amos was this character. He was this guy. He was a shepherd and a farmer who lived in Judah. And Israel, which was north of Judah, was ruled at the time by this king named King Jeroboam II. 
So he was a military leader that got himself to the level of king, and he gained much territory, and he was super, super rich and brought in lots of wealth. But that whole character of King Jeroboam II led to things like apathy and idol worship, which God was not cool with his people for that. King Jeroboam was known as one of the worst kings to the minor prophets. They thought that he was literally the worst. Imagine that. That was your title. It's like, we just, uh, we've all collectively agreed you've been the worst one. That would suck. You've really had to be a screw-up to, uh, to be named that, right? So this led to Israel and the surrounding areas to live in such a way that was contrary to God's covenant, to his will, to his promise with his people. And as we read in Amos shortly, we'll learn that Israel lived this double standard kind of life. And maybe as a Christian, you've battled and you've wrestled with this idea of living like a Christian when Christians are around and when your Christian family or friends aren't around, you kind of struggle in this other area of life and you feel like you're living two lives sometimes. The book of Amos is a collection of sermons, poems, and visions for Jeroboam, for Israel, and the surrounding communities about God's justice and his hope. And we're going to get into the idea of justice in a minute. That's really the theme we're going to talk about today. But I want that word justice just to sit with you as we continue. So the, the book is categorized into three main sections. So the first section in ver- is verses 1 to 2, and it would be titled like this, A Message to the Nation of Israel. So this is what happens in the first two chapters. Amos accuses, remember there's an accusation, the surrounding areas in Israel, uh, Israel about how they have ignored the poor. The wealthy have ignored the poor. They haven't been taking care of each other very well. So much so that they would sell the poor into slavery without legal representation. Now, this was the same people who God took out of slavery. Same people. The second section of the book would be verses 3 to 6, and you could title it like this, A Message to Israel and Its Leaders. So first there was the accusation, and now here's this call to repentance. So God chose Israel to be a blessing to the nations, And we know that when God gives us a call and we decide to follow that call, we say yes to that call, it's a great call. It equals great responsibility. And if we choose to break that promise of that call, great call, great responsibility equals great consequences. And this is where that collection of poems, which is a bunch of poems that expose religious hypocrisy, didn't say that word right, but we'll just move on. <laughs> just to give you kind of a timeline frame, you remember the story of like the golden calf and Baal, like that, that kind of stuff, if you know the Bible. This is kind of where that is taking place. And then you have the third section, verses 7 to 9, and these are the visions that Amos has. And he writes them down. So I would suggest that they're not to be taken maybe in a literal sense. Maybe, but... If you keep reading later in the Bible, it's not quite literal, but they're actually more symbolic depictions of this idea of the day of the Lord. And it talks about a locust swarm coming and eating up Israel or a scorching fire coming to burn Israel down or, or being swallowed up. He talks about ripe fruit being eaten. That obviously isn't exactly what happened. They were examples, right? Symbolic depictions. These visions talk about God's judgment on Israel and its leaders and kings and the destruction of the temple. 
And then the final paragraph is where you find this glimmer of hope. And God says he's actually going to restore the house of David out of the ruins of Israel. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about Jesus. He's going to come and restore God's house. And specifically, he talks about how all nations will be invited to be a part of God's house. Pretty cool. So a few moments ago, I mentioned this idea of justice. And this is really the focus of Amos's book, is that true righteousness is displayed through the act of justice. So what is justice? What is he talking about when he says the word justice? Well, we just look to the dictionary. This is what the dictionary says. Justice is fairness in the way people are dealt with. Now, when I think of the word justice, the first thing that comes to mind is the stories we grew up with as kids of our favorite superheroes, right? Like Marvel is like a big thing. Now, anybody, anybody a Marvel fan? Yeah, there are like so many movies. I don't know if you've ever done this, but last year, or was it during COVID, I guess, Maddie, we watched all the Marvel movies in a row and it took like three months. Like it took so long. I'll never get that time back. It was fun. Movies were great, but it, it was like... You know, you commit to watching, like, Harry Potter. It's, like, seven movies. You commit to watching Lord of the Rings. It's, like, three movies. You commit to watching Marvel. It's got, like, triple digits soon. (laughs) Like, it's almost going to be 100 movies soon. But I'm interested to know. So I want you literally real quick, if if you've heard me preach, you know I do this all the time. I'm going to ask you this question. What is your favorite superhero and why? So literally take 30 seconds, turn to your partner or whoever's next beside you, your neighbor, and uh, ask them this question. Who's your favorite superhero? Is it Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman? Who is it? Let them know why. And then I'm going to get it from you. All right. All right, let me hear it. Favorite superhero. I knew someone was going to say that. (laughs) Have you seen the movie? (laughs) Steve, who's your favorite superhero? You just like them all? Okay, okay. All right, Beatrice, what about you? Favorite superhero? Spider-Man? I agree. I agree. Where are my Spider-Man fans in the house? Yeah, yeah. Okay, what about Batman? Anybody like Batman? You see the new Batman? Pretty cool. Superman? The Hulk? Captain America? Ghost Rider. Nice, nice. I remember when we talked about superheroes at youth. Every time I mentioned Captain America, all the, all the girls are like, he's so hot. <laughs> Chris Evans, right? Yeah, he's a pretty good looking guy. Favorite superhero? My favorite superhero is Spider-Man. And uh, I'm a sucker for nostalgia, so I know this could be a bit of a slippery slope, but uh, my favorite Spider-Man actor would be Tobey Maguire. Um, and not because I think he's the best actor, but it's just the one that I grew up with. And I'm just, I'm just a sucker for nostalgia. But we love these kinds of stories, right? We love the idea of the superhero story. There's something fascinating to us that is captivating when we, when we watch things or read things or, or, or pay attention to this idea of justice, it's like this. It's like that our hearts and our minds are wired in such a way from birth to pay attention to justice in one or two ways. Either we try and like fight it and try and get away with the bad stuff, right? Or we're on the opposite spectrum of where we enjoy justice happening, Right? Reading through the book of Amos, you're going to consistently see this theme of justice come up over and over again. And I want to give you an example of how much it talks about justice. And as you're reading through the Bible, by the way, if you're noticing that specific words are coming up time and time and again, 
That is God giving you and me a clue to pay attention, (laughs) okay? All right, so chapter 5, here's just a couple verses, okay? Verse 7 says this. You twist justice, making it a bitter pill for the oppressed. You treat the righteous like dirt. How you hate honest judges. How you despise people who tell the truth. 11 says this. You trample the poor, stealing their gain through taxes and unfair rent. Therefore... Though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. You you oppress good people by taking bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Okay, verse 14, a couple later. Do what is good and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper, just as you have claimed. 15, hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. As we read this, it may be hard to understand how some of this text in the book can fit into our lives today. Remember that confusion we talked about earlier this morning? Because maybe perhaps you're not cheating anybody of money. Maybe you haven't sold somebody into slavery. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have turned our face when something wrong is happening and we know it. We have turned away from helping people because we are too overwhelmed with our own problems and we really don't have the time to make somebody else's problem ours. How many times have you and I saw somebody mistreated in our life and we just looked away as if nothing happened? How many times have we filled our own desires and fed our own flesh but allowed others to go without? Today, like much of the minor prophet books, this idea of justice that we're going to talk about is going to be a little bit of a hard pill to swallow. But I think it's so important for us to understand justice in the Christian faith. So we're going to talk about three things when it comes to justice. The first thing we're going to talk about is how justice is actually a character of God. God's character is justice. Now, if you know me, you know I love the world of apologetics, and this is a word that describes defending of the Christian faith. Basically, to study apologetics is to learn how to defend the faith and what good reasons, good reasons there are to actually believe and put your trust in the one true Christian God. One of the main uh, kind of defense points in apologetics would be this idea of morality, the subject of morality. Now, we could do an entire talk about this, and over, over the last few years, and especially during COVID, I was really, really surrounding myself uh, w- with books and literature, and friends that uh, are really knowledgeable on this kind of stuff. So I, I, would, I would just encourage you um, that God wants to do something in your heart, and he also wants to do something in your head, and one or the other alone is not enough. So God has given you a brain, and there are actually really good reasons rational reasons to believe in god not just because there's actually rational reasons and one of these rational reasons is morality where did it come from why do we think something is good and something is bad why do we decide to do things and abstain from other things is there a reason behind that well really quickly if you broke it down it'd be broken down to these two things Morality is either, number one, objective, meaning it comes from an outside source, outside of human beings, outside of our own opinion or thought. So morality could be objective, or it could be, number two, subjective, meaning that we, over time, 
humanity has decided what is right and what is wrong. The Christian perspective believes that morality must come from an outside opinion, something outside of ourselves, meaning that we have not set the standard of good and bad, of right and wrong. But it's come from outside ourselves, and we obviously believe that standard to be God, right? But you just think, if subjective morality were true, the idea would defeat itself within its own standards, a.k.a. one person's opinion versus somebody else's opinion on what's right and what's wrong. Well, what about the argument of morality coming from the idea of what is best for humanity? Like, maybe morality is subjective because, you know, over the last few hundreds or thousands of years, we've just learned to become more civilized and kind to one another. Maybe, maybe that's where morality comes from. It's, it's subjective, and it's just taken a long time to get here. Well, I think that argument can really be easily defeated through figures of history. So take, I know this is extreme, but take, you know, the Nazis or Hitler or world war leaders for that example. Hitler believed that it was morally better for humanity to rid of the Jewish people. That was his subjective opinion on morality. He thought that was the right thing to do. And if subjective morality is true, if it's true, then what's wrong with Hitler's idea? And they're like, whoa, Pastor Carlo, are you advocating for what happened? No, of course not. That's wrong. It's wrong. Because subjective morality is wrong. Because that example is extreme, but obviously it's not true. So if morality is objective, and the outside source we know that points to God, then we can understand that justice, doing things that are right, making wrong things right, is a moral character of God. He is the author of right and wrong. And when something is done wrong, it is in his character to want to make it made right. And if you or I are made in the image of God, then we share this character of justice. It's like God has given us this like inner moral compass that from a very young age, before anybody even tells us, we just know in our, in our gut when something bad is happening. We even know when we're doing something bad, right? We feel that conviction. God has designed us to have justice. Second thing I want to talk about today, so justice is actually a form of, of worship. Justice is a form of worship. As we learned earlier in the message during Amos's life, the Israelites had continued to disobey God and they were breaking the covenant time and time again. But at the same time, the Israelites and the people of God were really, really dedicated and really good at singing their songs, giving their offerings and sacrifices, displaying their love for God, but they didn't do so well at explain, uh, um, sharing this love with other people. Now, let's kind of translate that into today. Sometimes our life can seem maybe a little bit similar. We pray. It's good. We should pray. But we pray. We sing. We love to sing. We had incredible time in the presence of God this morning as we sung in worship. We thank God for what he's done for us. But perhaps at times when all of that doesn't exist and we're not here, we have trouble extending the same love that God has given us to other people. Like when we look away, when we know we shouldn't look away. When we should do something, when we should step in, when we should be courageous. I remember hearing as a teenager once this preacher say something along the lines of this. Maybe you've heard it. Like Christians don't tell lies, they sing lies. Maybe you've heard that. And I remember as a kid hearing that, uh, again, not growing up in church and 
shortly after giving my life to the Lord, becoming a Christian, I remember hearing something like that. And I remember this gut feeling, this conviction from the Holy Spirit that convicted me that the songs that I sing should extend into my everyday life when I'm not singing. That my life should be a reflection of the song. That my actions should be used as lyrics. That my life should be a chorus that somebody else remembers. And as somebody here at the church who leads in song and in worship and praise every few weeks, um, you know, singing communally with the people of God is so important to me and it's so close to my heart. And I long to be part of the song that pleases the ears of God. But our worship can't stop when the music stops. Our worship can't stop when the song stops. So let's take to heart these words that Amos writes. This is going to be a little intense, so hold your seat. 521 to 24 says this. I hate all your show and pretense, the hypocrisy of your religious festivals and solemn assemblies. I will not accept your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I won't even notice all of your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. An endless liver, endless liver, an endless river of righteous living. There we go. You know, as somebody who loves music, uh, as I was reading through this and preparing this message, I remembered hearing a song when I was a kid, and it's going to make me go over a few minutes today, but I hope that you find it worth it. And so if, if you're watching online, just for copyright purposes, we're just going to mute the audio, but you could follow along with the lyrics. And I just want you to hear this song that's really written from um, the, the text of, of Amos today. So let's listen to that together. Now, I didn't play that to try and make you feel bad or like so that you just like go home depressed or something about this. That wasn't the point. It was, it was really to emphasize the idea of how what we do here actually matters. I want to let you know as one of the pastors on staff that coming to church matters. Being part of the congregation matters. Tithing matters. Singing matters. I'm not putting away with any of that stuff. Big advocate for it, okay? But that alone, without the action of what happens outside of this wall, is only half the equation. And what it sounds like in Scripture is that God hates that. Now, there's not too many times in Scripture where the word God and hate are used simultaneously. It's rare. This is one of them. So let that be a clue to us this morning that justice and righteous living is very important to God. It's not only found in the book of Amos, this idea of justice. In James 2, 14 to 20, and in 26 as well, it says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, Goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well, but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. 
Now, someone may argue, some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good works and good deeds is useless? 26 says, just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Really quick, as we sum up this morning, the last point I want to talk about is how justice is the evidence of righteousness. Amos 5.24, we just read it a moment ago, but it said, Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Let's camp on that for a minute. Justice and righteousness, these two words, they're interwoven. It's as if they don't exist properly without the other. The Hebrew word for righteousness is, I'm going to screw this up, but that's okay, tadaka or something. <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. A standard of right, equitable relationships between people, no matter their social differences. And the word justice in Hebrew, mishaps, refers to concrete actions that you take to correct injustice and create righteousness. For example, in the past few weeks or so, if you've been following along with American politics, you don't need to do that, but just in case you do, uh, Roe Road v. Wade was overturned. And in a nutshell, what this means in America is now that the states individually are left up to either legalize or criminalize uh, the act of abortion. What I'm not suggesting right now is that we take a difficult, important, and emotional topic and we blatantly just say something and move on because that's not fair because we're talking about people. We're talking about women. We're talking about children. We're talking about families. That's not okay, and I would never do that. But at the same time, I believe that topics like this need to be talked about in a caring and thoughtful way. Justice is also not taking a heavy topic like abortion and only giving a few minutes to dialogue to it. But in the case where the life of the unborn, specifically in America, has finally won some legal rights, and if you're a Christian who believes in the right for the unborn to live, justice does not look like a celebration when a law is passed in your favor. Okay? I've had so many people in my social circles they just blast on their social media and stuff. Yes, 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 this law is finally passed. And they're just celebrating that. My friends, that is not justice. You know what justice is in the life of a believer when it comes to heavy topics like this? Yes, that the life of the unborn has now the right to live. Amazing. That is part of justice. But it doesn't end there. Justice is when we, the people who are fighting for the rights of the unborn, now step up and take ownership for mothers and women and children who can, they don't feel like they can bear the weight of what that ever means to them. It's celebration of justice is not when a law is just passed. It's when you involve yourself and do something about it. Dare I say, it's going to be intense, God hates the celebration without any action. So what? The demons even believe in God. So what? James 1, 27 says this, Religion 
that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. If you didn't believe me, then you can believe James. Now imagine with me a world where the church stepped up in such a way that hunger was no longer an issue. Imagine hygiene and health was no longer an issue, where shelter was no longer an issue, where God's people, you and I, lived in such a way and acted in such a way that no matter the situation, we stood up for the oppressed and broken, and we radically loved them like Christ has shown his love for us. This is the kingdom of God. This is God's kingdom. A number of years ago, we did this kind of little mini-series at Youth, and we were talking about the Lord's Prayer. It starts off like this in Matthew 6, 9 to 10. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. What does God's kingdom look like? It's kind of an odd thing. Well, Jesus says it right there. Your kingdom come, your will be done. What does God's kingdom look like? When his will is being done. God's kingdom looks like his will. To be a people of justice and righteous living is to live out the will of God and bring a little bit of heaven to earth every single day. So as we wrap up this morning's message, I know it was a bit of a tough one. My prayer is that for each of us, the Holy Spirit would have sparked a new understanding of what it means to love our neighbor, to love our enemy, to take responsibility. And the amazing thing about Bethel Church, it's been in Stratford for over 100 years. Did you know that? might not look this old, but it's been here for over a hundred years. You know, Bethel Church has an amazing story, an amazing history, and legacy of loving this city. And I love Pastor Charlie when you brought it up at the beginning of service, just the way we were able to tangibly love thousands of kids yesterday just in a parade. Like, we were the biggest, not to flaunt it, but like, we were the biggest and best float. They put us at the end for a reason, all right? It's pretty cool. Pretty cool, right? But as we continue to move forward with what God wants to do, may we come together again and partner with him by righteous living through acts of justice and mercy. And remember, justice is not flaunting your political win in somebody else's face or blasting your thoughts on a subject on social media. Instead, justice is this. We've talked about it in three ways today. Justice is a character of God that we get to share with him. Justice is a form of worship to God. It's actually an action. And justice is the evidence of righteous living before God. So what now? We've talked, we've heard, we've learned, we've listened about justice. How do we take this information home? And how do we apply it? Well, if you're looking for similar examples of what you've read in Amos with slavery or different things like that, you might found it, find it in places around the world still, but maybe in our context, you don't. And so just for one minute, really, really quick, I want you to take one minute, and I want you to think about this question. What does justice look like today? What does justice look like today, personally, in your life? I want you to take one minute. We don't normally end like this, but we do at youth group. So welcome to youth group on Sunday morning. We've got great groups going on right now. One minute, turn to your partner or friend or person that you're sitting beside and ask them this question. What does justice look like today? Take one minute and then we'll come back and pray. I don't want to rush this moment, but for sake of time, just to honor you guys 
in your time. What I would encourage you to do is wherever you're going after this, whether you're going home with your family, meeting up with someone for lunch, would you just continue this conversation of justice today? Uh, let that sink in a little more. Let your mind kind of just think on that a little bit longer. I want to invite the prayer team to come forward this morning as we close in prayer. And I uh, just want to invite you after, after we close in prayer, if you want prayer for anything, Hey, if you accepted the Lord for the first time or rededicated your life to God this morning, I would love for you to come and pray with one of our prayer team members. They are all amazing, amazing people. Let's take a moment and pray together. Well, Jesus, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, God. We thank you for Spirit of God, the conviction in our heart, which leads to transformation. And God, as we continue through the books of the Minor Prophets, even though that they are heavy, God, I, I pray in the same way that Amos left his readers and listeners with this glimpse of hope at the end, that God, our hope today is that none of this is on our own shoulders. We don't bear the weight of the world. But God, you're with us. You give us strength. You give us wisdom. You give us courage. You give us the ability. You give us everything that we need for what you've called us to do. So God, may we be a people of righteous living instead of just a show, instead of just a club. May there be justice that flows like a river, like through our veins. Let it be known that the church takes care of people better than anybody else in the whole world because we have a God who takes care of us. So Jesus, as we go this week, be our peace, be our comfort, be our helper, be our friend. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for being with us this morning. Just want to remind you, we've got lots of stuff going on this summer. Be sure to head to the website, get more information. Stick around, meet some people, talk with some people. And uh, if you would like prayer, we just invite you to come up to pray. Thanks for checking out this week's message, Bethel Church Podcast that's blessed you and encouraged you and that you come back and check out next week's message as well. 